So I'm continuing the inspirational quotes for men this week. So last week it was the man in the arena. Today it's less dramatic, but it's important nonetheless. And addressed to fathers just in time for Father's Day next week from a pastor, quote, Fathers, don't just take your kids to church. Show them what it means to worship corporately. Clap and sing along with the songs. Bow your head or kneel in prayer. Listen attentively to the sermon. Repent of your sins. And afterwards, tell them the work God did for you this week. They need to know that church isn't an empty routine, but a fountain of life. Not just fathers, but husbands, grandfathers, older men. We must set the tone in worship services. Our wives, sisters, children should look to us as examples. And now who do we as men look to? With all his faults, David is one of those men in the Bible who exemplify sincere worship. And we'll see that in today's passage in 2 Samuel 6, as he continues his role as king. So let's turn to the passage now. 2 Samuel 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nakhon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Paris Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told, King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King 
King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of those base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maid servants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. While David's central to this, character, uh, this chapter, it's his reactions to the ark or interactions with others that gets us thinking about worship. First, David stops to consider God's judgment of Uzzah, Abinadab's son, in verses 1 to 11. Secondly, David's on the move again after God blesses Obed-Edom's house in verses 12 to 15. Finally, David's joy in God's presence irks and bothers Michal, Saul's daughter, in verses 16 to 23. So based on these three parts, I observe three lessons for those who desire to worship God properly. First, approach God's holiness with care. Approach God's holiness with care, verses 1 to 11. Two, delight in God's blessing with sacrifice. Delight in God's blessing with sacrifice, verses 12 to 15. Three, celebrate God's presence with humility. Celebrate God's presence with humility. That's verses 16 to 23. First, approach God's holiness with care. I'll spend the most amount of time on this point. And before we talk about this principle for worship, let's discuss the Ark of the Covenant, what it is and where it is. To an undiscerning eye, the Ark's just a regular wooden chest overlaid with gold. Its coverings made of pure gold, what is called a mercy seat. On it are two golden figures of angels called cherubim facing each other and covering the seat. But there's more to it. The ark bore the name of God himself. That means it was a visible representation of God's presence. God as he's worshipped by angels in heaven. And this God is among the Israelites. It was a sign that Yahweh dwelt with his people, people of the covenant, in a special way. 
the symbol that the Lord of angel armies is on their side. Because this holy object points to the sovereign king, the creator of the universe, the holy one of Israel, it must be treated with utmost respect, utmost reverence, in accordance with God's commands. I'll talk more about the design, but that answers the question, basically, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Now let's talk about where it is. Understandably, it was on the move during the wilderness wandering of Israel and during the conquest. But it's interesting to trace its movement in First and Second Samuels. You could say that the Ark has a story arc. But you think, well, shouldn't the ark just stay in the proper place in the tent, what's called the tabernacle? It was so for a while in Shiloh when Eli was priest, but then the Israelites brought it out to Ebenezer in their battle against the Philistines. They thought it would serve as their lucky charm. God refused to be manipulated like that, so he permitted the Philistines to defeat Israel and capture the ark, and they brought it over to their temple of Dagon and Ashdod. But then, without any help from the Israelites, from his sinful people, the Lord brought the ark back to Israelite territory. God punished the Philistine towns, striking them with tumors. Finally, their priests and diviners and lords had had enough. They took two milk cows, hitched them to a new cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of God on the cart and included a chest with gold, Defying all explanation and maternal instincts, the cows went straight ahead to Israel, away from their young. The ark arrived within Israelite borders at Beth Shemesh, but its inhabitants mishandled it and looked inside, so it was transferred to the city of Kerjat Jerem. As you see in today's passage, Kerjat Jerem is also called Kerjat Bel, Bel Judah, or Baalah. You also see that in Joshua and First Chronicles. The ark was stationed in the house of Abinadab, where his son Eleazar was consecrated to keep it. Later, one time, King Saul tried to move it again into the battle against the Philistines, but thankfully that wasn't followed through. So here we are. David wanted the ark in his newfound city of Jerusalem. Before Moses died, he repeatedly spoke to the Israelites about the place where the Lord their God chose or chooses to put his name. In David's mind, Jerusalem is that place. It's already the geographical and political center of his land. He wants to make the city its religious center as well. David wanted to communicate that as much as he's the king of Israel, he's a servant of God. That's all good and all, but maybe the king should have prayed and read the Bible first. We just saw in the previous chapter, David inquiring the Lord before making his moves against the Philistines in battle. Now, moving the ark's a major move. It requires divine guidance. But maybe the king suffered from what we call recency bias. Remember how the milk cows of Philistia brought the ark back to Israel on a new cart. Could David have thought, I'll do something similar but better? 
I'll use oxen instead of cows. But since Jerusalem is located on top of a mountain and it's going to be a bumpy ride, I'll need someone to guide the animals. Well, how about those sons of Abinadab? I mean, after all, the family took good care of the ark for two decades and they deserve some honor for it. Maybe that's what David was thinking. So Ahio was at the front and Uzzah at the back. Behind the cart were the crowds of people, 30,000 choice men, captains and leaders of the nation, assembly of Israel, brethren, Levites and priests, skilled musicians playing six instrument categories in verse 5, three of them for melody and harmony, like the harp, the other three for rhythmic percussion, like the sistrum, which is like made a rattle sound. First Chronicles 13.8 also mentions trumpets. The music's grand. Just the way that David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, likes it. The transportation is efficient and effective. The ark's making its way to its destination. But something's not right. See, God has prescribed a specific way for the ark to be carried. Its basic design and common sense would testify to this. Here's what the Lord said to Moses back in Exodus 25, 12 to 15. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, the ark, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Also, if you look at 1 Chronicles 15, 11 to 15, and that's fast-forwarding to later, this is David after he learned from his mistake, and it says there, And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, Aminadab. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not... Do it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So David learned this lesson the hard way. Yes, cartwheels and oxen feet are easier than poles on our shoulders and weight on our feet. And someone might ask, who cares about the method as long as it gets from point A to point B? Well, the Lord cares. He not only cares about the ends, he cares about the means to those ends. He cares about his holiness. And the poles were supposed to be in place, not for God's protection, but for ours. Because it keep any sinful man from direct contact with the ark. Well, the cart idea starts out okay. All seemed to be going well with the procession until they arrived at the threshing floor of Nakon. He's also named Kidon, according to First Chronicles. It's somewhere within the nine-mile route from Kirjat-Jerim to Jerusalem, there the oxen stumbled, and the ark shifted in the cart. 
Ahio at the front didn't see it, but his brother Uzzah at the back did. He commits an error here. His last one. As he put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. The Lord was angry and struck him. He killed Uzzah right there. David was initially angry because his grand plan came to nothing. The day's ruined. The party's over. They learned that they must approach God's holiness with care. Let's stop to reflect on two words in this passage. Error in verse 7 and Perez in verse 8. First, the error of Uzzah. What is it exactly? Simply put, God did not permit sinners to touch the ark, even the Levites who had relatively greater access to holy things. The Lord didn't hide this truth from Israel, but clearly revealed it in the scriptures. David should have known better. Uzzah should have known better. The priest should have known better. But in the spur of the moment, Uzzah relied on his strength his hand, his family background, his years of experience being around the ark. He thought he was exceptional. He thought he can play hero that day. He transgressed his boundaries and he fell. R.C. Sproul has a great reflection on this event in his classic work, Holiness of God, quote, Uzzah's act was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield in a season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. When the temperature falls to a certain point, the ground freezes, When water is added to the dust, it becomes mud, just as God designed it. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which is contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him, that which by its ungodly revolt had brought the whole creation to ruin and caused the ground and the sky and the waters of the sea to groan together in travail waiting for the day of redemption. Man. It was man's touch that was forbidden. So this was Uzzah's error. Let's talk about the other word attached to his name. The place of his death memorialized as Perez Uzzah. That word Paris should sound familiar. It's the same word that we saw last chapter in a different form slightly in 2 Samuel 5.20. Remember how God gave David victory over the Philistines. So 2 Samuel 5.20, we read there. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. Baal refers to the God of Israel. And Perazim, the power with which he subdued their enemies. Perazim is the same root as Paris, meaning outbreak, breakthrough, 
Got to stop here for a gospel application here. All humanity is in danger of this Lord of hosts, the God of the angelic armies, who breaks out in anger against sin. The holiness of God is a problem, not only for idol worshipers like Philistines. The holiness of God is a problem for those like Uzzah. I'm talking about those who come from a pious background. Those who are exposed to the scriptures, yet do not obey. Even today, there are many who grow up in homes like the household of Abinadab. Over decades, they deceive themselves as they remain mere hearers of the word, not doers of it. Worse yet, some are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Almighty Holy God could and did break out against an Israelite just as he did against the pagans. That should scare us. God punishes big and small sins alike, both the sins of the Philistines and the sin of Uzzah. The Lord's against the ignorant and the presumptuous. That's why all of us must repent and turn to God to find forgiveness. And here's the good news that comes from the line of David, Jesus. He's the one who can save us from our sins, sins that lead to the Lord's outburst of wrath. For our guilt, God should break us and send us to hell for eternity, but because God so loved us, he sent his son. The word became flesh and made and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus lived a perfect life as God's holy servant, though without sin. For our sakes, he went to the cross and died to pay the penalty of our sins. He shed his pure blood, which cleanses sinners and brings us close to the holy God. He rose again from the dead on the third day, proved himself to be alive. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. If we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, we'll truly know God, not only as the one who's holy, but also as the one who's merciful. You can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot earn or deserve eternal life. You can know him today as God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And speaking of blessing, we turn back to 2 Samuel 6, and we turn to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. That's where the ark rested for three months. Obed-Edom is a common name at the time. The title Gittite would distinguish this one from others. Gittite probably means that this man's an immigrant from Gath and Philistia. He left his home to follow David and his God, just as Ruth left Moab for Israel and followed Naomi and her God. So, and Obed-Edom's faith in Yahweh and loyalty to David Paid off. And then it was reported to the king how God has blessed Obed Edom 
materially and spiritually. And this is the pivotal signal David needs to continue the procession. This time he's better equipped for the task. Again, 1 Chronicles 15, 11 to 15, tells us how the king realized he should have consulted God the first time. He ordered the priests and the Levites to carry the ark with poles in proper place and order. Now the king can delight in God's blessing with sacrifice. And that's the second principle of worship. Over the past three months, David's fury faded and his fear turned to faith. There's now gladness in worship. Just as before, there's a cost of sincere worship as musicians play their instruments with passion and energy. There are also some additional costs. No more convenient cart and strong oxen to carry the ark. There's also the cost of animal sacrifices. We're not sure whether this occurred every six steps of the procession or just at the very beginning, just once after the first six steps. I tend to think the latter. But whatever the case, there's, a, there's certainly a cost here. So what will it cost you to delight in God's blessing with sacrifice? Now, we don't have bloody sacrifices anymore because of the finished work of Jesus, his cleansing blood. We may not have all the musical talent or dance moves. Don't care to find out whether you do have those dance moves. You don't want to know if I do as well. But we too can delight in God's blessing with sacrifice. We do that every time we open our mouths and worship. Hebrews 13, 15, we can offer sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But then there's another cost of worshiping God that's here in this passage. It's a cost that even saints today face. True worshipers will face ridicule and rejection from the government, neighbors, co-workers, friends, even from their own family members. David knows that feeling. And that's why it's key that we celebrate God's presence with humility. That's the third principle of worship here. I'm going to set the scene before Michal confronts her husband there. As the procession enters Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant will be placed in a replica tabernacle that David had prepared in advance. By the way, the original tabernacle is located in Gibeon at this point. After the ark was set in its place in Jerusalem, David gave thanks to God and appointed ministers for the ark. He also offered offerings before the Lord, blessed the people, and distributed gifts to them. Now, you may wonder why David's acting like a priest here. Again, he's got the linen ephod on, making sacrifices, blessing people. Doesn't the king know that Moses said nothing concerning priests in reference to his tribe of Judah? Would he dare overstep his bounds to act as a Levite and take on ritual duties reserved for them? Would he be like the other foolish kings Saul before him and Uzziah after him? 
What's going on here? If we let scriptures interpret scriptures, we know that after this event, the Lord promises that David's house, kingdom, and throne will be established forever through one of his descendants. As more details and revelation come in, we also learn that this descendant is somehow greater than David. A son of David's, the Lord of David. We find this truth in Psalm 110. And explained by Jesus himself in the Gospels, Jesus who himself fulfills this word. And then if you read Psalm 110, verse 4, here's what God says about Jesus Christ, the son of David. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There it is. And putting it all together, from the royal kingly line of David comes a priestly ruler. The priesthood's not according to the order of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. is from another order, that of Melchizedek. Now, I encourage you to read book of Hebrews to dig deeper for a fuller perspective. But for our purposes in 2 Samuel 6, let's limit ourselves to David's point of view and consider the following. Was David here dressed up not in the attire of the Levites, but in the attire of Melchizedek? Maybe. Was David here reenacting the event of Genesis 14? Like Melchizedek, David distributed food, blessed God and his people, acted like a priest. Was David on this joyful occasion also anticipating the promise of the future priest king in Jesus, according to the prophecy of Psalm 110? I say yes to all these questions. But he was not out of line when he did all this. That's a, another sermon in itself. <laughs> but now let's back, get back to Mikkel. She saw how David was dancing, leaping, and whirling. But what concerned the queen the most was how the king looked. It's in verse 20. In the eyes of the maids of his servants. She's concerned about David's public image more than his public worship. But what's David's response? We must focus on a key prepositional phrase throughout the Bible and in this chapter. We saw it earlier in verses 5 and 14 from the lips of the narrator. Now we see it twice in verse 21 from David's mouth. It's before the Lord. See, if you want to worship God, you must sing, stand, move before the Lord. Don't fear how you look in the eyes of others. Don't worry about glory and dignity of your status. Don't be obsessed with self-image, whether you're famous in your own sight. Live and worship Koram Deo before God, before the audience of one in heaven. Celebrate his presence with humility. Sadly, there will be those who despise you and your worship, like Mikhail. Their judgment is certain. It's interesting how Mikhail's labeled in this chapter. 
Her name is mentioned four times, but in three of the four, she's referred to as Saul's daughter. Verses 16, 20, and 23. Isn't that strange? Why not say she's David's wife? I mean, if there's one wife of David with whom he shared a legitimate marriage, at least for a bit, it'd be Michal. But there's something that can create a rift in marriage. We're talking about belief in God and unbelief. One spouse living before the Lord and the other apart from God. Today's not the day to talk about homes divided by faith. But here in 2 Samuel 6, it's an illustration of what happens to such homes. This is more than a typical verbal spat between couples. This is a God's judgment delivered by himself with the king as his messenger. David reminds Michal that God chose him instead of her father and all his house to be king over Israel. The Lord backs up David's words as Michal does not bear any children for him. Will you, will I, will we worship like David? Worship's important. It matters. The Bible not only describes it, it prescribes it. Will you worship even at the cost of your dignity? God's worth it all. If we consider the true object of worship, the Lord as he's revealed in the scriptures, you'll see he's worth the cost. The Holy One, the one who blesses us in Christ. Let's worship him now. Come thou fount of every blessing. To my heart to sing thy grace. Dreams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you. Somehow we sinners are able to come before you, the holy God. It's because of your son, Jesus Christ. We understand the gospel truth. But Lord, we are amazed every time we consider it. We thank you for blessing us. And we think of blessings that sometimes that, we, that may be more immediate, but most importantly, we think of eternal life in heaven, the treasures in heaven. But most importantly, you as our treasure, a restored, reconciled relationship with you in spite of our sinful nature. We thank you that your son has provided a solution to that. And Lord, may our worship overflow into our lives. May our corporate worship just be, energize us, be a warm-up for heaven and as we live before you each day of our lives. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.